Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm Brooke Jackson, one of your hosts today, along with Cassandra. Today we have the honor of talking with the author, researcher, and journalist Shane Burley. We're going to discuss conspiracy theories, or whatever rabbit holes that topic takes us into. But first, we'd like to celebrate being a member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts by playing a little jingle from one of the other podcasts on the network. Here it goes. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Are you tired of listening to Western experts talking how the world works? Is another portion of liberal analysis of the uprising makes you fall asleep? Well, then check Elephant in the Room, an anarchist radio show from European Dresden, where we interview activists who are participating in struggles around the world. Elephant in the Room is a proud member of Channel Zero Network. You can find our show on your favorite podcast platforms, CZN website, or somewhere on the internet. From activists? For activists. And we're back. Uh, Shane, thanks for joining us today to talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, including sharing your pronouns? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. My name's Shane Burley. Uh, pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I uh, researched the far right, amongst other things. I've written a few books on it, uh, Why We Fight from back in 2021 and Fascism Today from 2017. And most recently, um, edited this big anti-fascism anthology called No Passeran, uh, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. And uh, right now, I am working on a book with my co-author, Ben Lorber, for Melville House Books on Anti-Semitism. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, the one you wrote back in 2017, Cassandra has a copy of that book. And when I realized that my beliefs align with anarchism, I was like, I should learn about what this is and, uh, you know, learn more about fascism, too. And I was like, Cassandra, do you have a good, like, primer book mm-hmm. on this for me? And she just went to the bookshelf and pulled that one out. <laughs> it was yours. Handed it over. So. <laughs> Oh, awesome. That's what I was hoping for uh, when we wrote it, because there wasn't a lot that was good and straightforward at the time, at least from our right. side. Spreading the good news <laughs> about <Yeah>. anti-fascism. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was a good piece for, uh, for you know, getting started in the learning there. So thank you for writing it and for your continued work. Yeah, thanks so uh, much for saying that. It was really kind. Yeah. Uh, so we want to talk today about uh, conspiracy theories and wanted to start with um, a real basic question just to make sure we're all kind of on the same page as we're having this conversation of what is a conspiracy theory? A conspiracy theory is a theory about a conspiracy that is not true. Um, more appropriately, it's one that could not be true. So I think it's distinguishing from actual conspiracies because there are conspiracies in the world. So, you know, a good comparison about this would be the killing of JFK. There's conspiracy theories that range from three people did it to 10,000 people did it. But no matter what, one person had to engage in some kind of collaboration. So some kind of conspiracy is possible, which is separate from conspiracy theory. So I think we separate it from like the various kind of quote unquote conspiracies that lots of organizations and governments engage in just in day to day work versus ones that basically uh, come up against the basic laws of physics and uh, how we understand the world to work and are specifically divert our understanding how complex issues work by sort of putting an element of fantasy into them. So that kind of answers one of the questions that I've been pondering, although we can talk about it more of, um, 
uh, well, Cassandra's been wondering about, you know, why, uh, why they, why conspiracy theories have become so mainstream. And my sort of corollary thought was, it seems like they're so appealing to people. You know, those two things are kind of tied together, the mainstreaming and the fact that they seem to really appeal uh, to people for some reason. So not even just mainstream as in the, the rest of society mainstream, but mainstream on the left. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I was interviewing a friend, Brendan O'Connor, who who uh, wrote a book, uh, Blood Red Lines, about anti-immigrant kind of nativism and border politics. And he made a comment uh, that I thought a lot about, which was that like he, he's kind of unsure about where the line between conspiracy theories and like, quote unquote, false consciousness lies. Like, it, what's the difference between conspiracy theory and what's the difference between, between misunderstanding sources of oppression and how systems work, which is a common thing. And I think one of the realities about a conspiracy theory is that it is an attempt to liberate oneself. Like it is actually an attempt to do that. It's an attempt to explain people in power and explain your own disempowerment. And so in situations in which lots of instability or feelings of loss of status, whatever they are, real and imagined, uh, when those things start to, to sort of percolate, conspiracy theories are the easier answer. Uh, they don't require a ton of political education. They don't um, depend on a lot of kind of shared reality even. And our society depends really heavily both on false consciousness and conspiracy theories, depending on how you put those lines. Particularly the entire Republican Party has built Mm -hmm. a mythos on working class people, specifically not elites, right? That's like the language used. And their policy is entirely based around basically inculcating rich and the the rich and the people who own capital. So how do you explain both of those things? It has to be institutionalized false consciousness, which in itself engages a certain amount of conspiracy theories. How can you understand empowering the rich and empowering the working class at the same time? Those things don't commiserate, except millions and millions of people assume that they can. And so I think there's an institutionalization of that kind of thinking. And conspiracy theories, like the wild ones, actually aren't that far afield from that. You know, because if you think about the way that things like just basic like taxes and social services versus the kind of benefit to the rich, it seems pretty obvious that when those who own capital are enriched, that that money comes from us. I mean, it doesn't require, Mm -hmm. you know, a master's thesis to explain that. So you have to get millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people to basically avoid thinking about that or to believe it's untrue. And so that I think is foundational to the way that we think about conspiracy theories, because we all, not all of us, hopefully, but huge portions of us engage in some level of conspiracy thinking. You can tell me if you think this is accurate. It seems like conspiracy theories often try to blame individuals rather than looking at systems, for instance, Hmm. it sort of frustrates me when people are like, you know, eat the rich, which, yeah, eat the rich. But like, if Jeff Bezos would just, you know, redistribute his wealth, everything would be fine. But it wouldn't be because capitalism would still exist. And there would just be someone else super rich. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the kind of classic line on this is that Conspiracy theories, and particularly anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, just as like the archetype for it, are the one of the most effective defenders of capital. Because what it does is divert your attention away from a system and places on supposedly corrupt individuals. Mm-hmm. And there's like a couple of reasons I think this is really um, attractive to people. I think one is that it actually plays on bigotries really well and validates them in a certain sense. So there's certain stories that people tell, right? So one is that they're aggrieved and legitimately so. 
I would say that most members of the working class are have a problem, right? They're being exploited at work. They're not being paid, obviously, what they're worth. Like, you know, paying bills is hard. It's miserable. It's very upsetting, the things that we go through. Even people who are reasonably affluent but not ruling class, it's actually quite difficult. And so that's a legitimate grievance. And I think that grievance has a lot of anger built up with it. And that anger inside people's bodies and minds is often indistinguishable from bigotry. I think it's actually Mm -hmm. those things intermix a lot. So it's the impulse that if someone is actually legitimately your oppressor in a dynamic, you know, your boss, there's an impulse to actually want to say something bigoted to them. There's like a lot of kind of research about like people being pushed and saying things and doing things that they never thought they would in the direction of bigotry, simply as a way of harming those they think are harming them. And so what a lot of these conspiracy theories do and populist conspiracy theories in general is allow you to sort of indulge in that a bit. So like, it's not uncommon to focus on the effeminacy of the uh, ruling class. So like, you'll see this a lot, you know, like Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, look at his soft hands. He can never do the hard work like us. Like, you know, there's a certain kind of like, let's make them look effeminate. Let's make them look queer or code them as queer. Also Uh, the lizard thing, like talking about mm -hmm. how they look like lizards. Very much about their appearance. I mean, if you look at like mid, sort of like, like early 20th century, socialist literature the inordinate focus on making the capitalist class look fat like just absolutely rotund as if they're consuming things that you know you know they're eating so much that you can't eat you become small and they become big so mm-hmm. i think that, that allows that gives a, a twofer right that says okay yeah they're the capitalist class they're you know oppressing in that way and also that discomfort you feel of fat people those are now one and the same and like one mm-hmm. actually mobilizes the other like one becomes a weapon for the other so i think that's a, an easy way to do to focus on that personalization and the other thing is like if, if if getting rid of Jeff Bezos doesn't solve the problem, what the fuck would solve the problem? That's really scary. I, I think like this idea that that there are certainly targets in terms of like the kind of super rich and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's not that's not enough. Like, yeah. what does it mean to go after a system of capital? Like, what does that even mean? I think that's a really confusing prospect. And it's one that is really emotionally unsatisfying when it gets right down to it. Yeah, because we haven't we haven't imagined alternatives or, you know, the average person hasn't imagined alternatives to that. Or what, how will you even get there? Like what, yeah. what's a pathway to alternative? I think like the idea of getting rid of Jeff Bezos, whether or not it's realistic, at least you kind of have understand the physicality of what that would be. But what does it mean to like communize the entire economy? I mean, what does it mean to actually like look at your life and say like, how can I fix these really deeply laid traumas and undo them? and like replace it like that is just such a a mammoth task that it's i think it's hard to build up a consciousness that's really easy has a quick fix mentality that's easy to communicate to another person it's a lot easier to say you know and i've like worked for unions i've been a union organizer to say like it's that boss look what he's doing look at what the car is driving he couldn't do your job like those things are easy and they are true in most of those cases but they're not the end of the story and so i think we end up with that really foreshortened perspective because the other stuff is just so big yeah and i i wonder if when we explore the big stuff we also have to look at the ways we've participated which is Mm -hmm. difficult Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean like there's it's um you know capital is really complicated now and the way our our we our lives are intertwined in it is really difficult you know like huge portions of the economy are made up of people that would have previously been considered like 
petty bourgeois, you know, freelancers, contract workers, you know, is an Uber driver, a business owner. I mean, there's like these things that don't really make sense in the traditional kind of like Marxist sense or the ways we talk about activism and, and capitalism and wealth. And so it ends up being really complicated. And then when you add the dimensions of being like, you know, white folks or in the global north, um, that's sort of like hyper exploiting under other countries, like, what, how does that relationship work? You know, does it does, do mm. I have Am I doing that? Do I benefit from it? What does it mean to benefit from it? You know, like, I think that actually adds those layers of complexity to it. It's a lot. I mean, I think that's why that's just the new story. I mean, that's why conspiracy theories are the story that we tell. It's a really important story. And like you said, it's not just the right, it's the left too. So why do you think that they have become so much more mainstream? You know, because they've always had that quality of being... Um, simpler explanation or an easy thing to point to but you know but now we're seeing them becoming more common and like cassandra said uh you know more common on the left as well like what's what's the what's the rise about why is that happening i think that it comes um partially from the destabilization of kind of western economies like the 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 center has collapsed out so you're not having as much of just moderate politics in general um, the radical version of right-wing politics is conspiratorial. It's necessarily conspiratorial. So the, the more radical it gets, the more conspiratorial it's going to get. Um, that's really, really important for how it builds up sort of a, um, like an enthusiastic base of supporters is built on conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Because again, they like the left and the right will build their energy on similar impulses, right? The impulse to liberate oneself. Well, if we're talking about quote unquote white working class, which is a kind of an artificial category, but if we're going to talk about that in the kind of MAGA Trumpian sense, um, they are people like all people who have like diminishing 401ks and have like, you know, rents that they can afford and stuff, even though they're not disproportionately, you know, poor or anything. It's a general, a general feeling of decline, right? So there mm-hmm. is decline generally happening. And so that radicalization is going to be in the direction of conspiracy theories, because if you were straightforward about right wing politics, no working class person would ever accept such a thing. You know, like, oh, so, so you're going to keep taxing me and then and then give tax breaks to rich people. I mean, it makes no sense when you think about it. You're going to bust my union and I won't have as good of a pension. You have to have conspiracy theories and bigotries underlying that. So those simply just radicalize more. And they give a narrative and mythology to the real emotional turmoil that people are living with. You know, like stop the steal makes a lot of sense if you feel like everyone's stealing everything from you. Mm-hmm. Like you're always being stolen from. Of course yeah. they're going to steal this election. They, this election told me they were going to fix problems and they stole it from me. Just like they stole my pension. Just like they stole my home on foreclosure. So I think those things are, are, are transpiring. I think on the left, there is an increase in conspiracy theories. Because of the decline in political education and us talking things out, there's not a really good sense about like systems. And uh, there's also just a rapidly increasing sort of uh, social network of sharing information that shortens it a lot. So instead of sort of talking about complex issues, it's a lot easier to like package them in bite-sized bits. Um, And those things become a lot more viral. People also really enjoy thinking that they are uh, participating in secret knowledge of some kind. Like they've, they've been smart. They're ahead of the curve. They're ahead of the official information. I mean, Google search, you know, Epstein didn't kill himself and see all the people that have decided that they know something that the rest of everyone doesn't know, you know, like there's, I think it's, there's an effort to step past uncertainty and confusion and complexity and just kind of claim knowledge. And so mm-hmm. that's become, like, I think an important part of how those discourses happen. And then they just happen so rapidly now. They just, they, they progress so quickly. Yeah. I, I know deep down that conspiracy theories on the right are ultimately more dangerous, but I get so much more frustrated 
when I see it on the left because I feel like we should know better. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think about the like, like to the right, Jews are like dirty communists Mm -hmm. and to the left Jews are dirty capitalists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one makes me more angry than the other. (laughs) It's interesting because we associate the Jew as the communist with the right. And actually the right used the Jew as the capitalist more. Really? Um, So like a lot, for example, in the second generation clan, would focus on Jewish capitalists. Um, part of it is that most likely a lot of the people in the Klan base hadn't met Jewish communists, and like people in other countries might have met Jewish communists. You know, but the the this is one of the things I think is interesting is that there is just a rhetorical crossover that happens here. And actually, when you see and this does happen, it's not it's not nearly the level that the right or liberals want to make it sound. But there is like there is moments of crossover when people from the left take on really far right ideas or even move to the far right. It has happened. And anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is one of the primary ways that happens because this sort of anti-capitalism um, I use the term fetishized anti-capitalism, but you know, basically any enemies of capitalism are therefore my friends. And so even these kind of radical traditionalist forms of anti-capitalism, these like ultra conservative nationalistic or fascistic forms of anti-capitalism sort of start to feed like, well, they are opposed to the same systems. They must be the same thing. And that happens with, with anti-Semitism. And I think we allow for this in all kinds of ways on the left. I mean, I have been, you know, the the amount of times I've been at like international solidarity rallies where like really despotic regimes are being like kind of like with signs and flags um, simply because they're enemies of our enemy, uh, mm-hmm. either of the U.S. or the West or Israel or something, or where sort of like these far right groups are propped up because they supposedly are against the banksters uh, when their theory about it, you know, involves all kind of like Rothschild conspiracy theories and, you know, what they want, like a certain kind of Christian nationalism. So we overlook those really commonly when they are our enemies um, or when they are ourselves. Like uh, people are very soft on each other's conspiracy theories. I mean, how many 9-11 truth folks have you known in your life? You know, a lot. And like, those are fundamentally anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. They depend on them. That's, that's the, that's how they function. Um, And this is true in the environmental movement. This is true, obviously in feminist circles. It, It has like different, it has different targets and different constituencies, but it's what we see like with the kind of growth of turfism and that the, these use of conspiracy theories to explain their weird yes. So it's like, I think it, it's something that we're not prepared to sort of deal with. And we don't, I think always communicate why it's a problem. Um, I don't think there's a general consensus on the left that it really is a problem. I'll go back to the Epstein thing. You know, mm. the Epstein case is really suspicious. People should probably look at that, but I don't know what happened. And I have no reason to believe it was conspiracy. I just don't. And the, the assumption by everyone jumping immediately into it sort of communicates to me that people feel like totally fine and engaging in conspiracy theories when they don't, when they have gaps of information and everyone's pretty gentle on this. Um, and that's not like the most serious conspiracy theory. I'm not going to like, you know, put my stake in the wall in it, but I think we need to start talking to each other about that. And the other thing about this is that it's a losing strategy. You know, this is, it's one of the worst ways of liberating yourself is to do it in accordance with the conspiracy theory, because you will Mm -hmm. necessarily lose. We will always necessarily lose. There is no conspiracy theory that has ever led someone to like an effective social movement to change anything. Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I have to say. (laughs) Amen. 
Yeah. So you guys started getting into the the ties between um, conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism. And there was a whole bunch that went on in that conversation that was just over my head here that I did not pick up on. So um, you could ask, uh, ask for clarifying statements. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but you're on a roll. I don't want to know. (laughs) We try to make this digestible to someone who's not familiar with, with the topic. So, you know, Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, but I am definitely curious to talk more about uh, the ties between conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism. Um, I brought that up the other day and, and Cassandra made the point of, um, I think you said something like, all conspiracy theories eventually lead back to anti-Semitism or something like that. If I'm totally misquoting you, please correct me. Okay. Often. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is um, not a thing I've ever heard before and i like wanted to dive into that statement that you made and understand it anyway so i want to talk more about the links between conspiracy theories and anti-semitism yeah you know anti-semitism um has always held a conspiratorial element to it a conspiratorial core even before it engaged in what we would know as conspiracy theories today so like Anti-Semitism, you know, historic anti-Judaism in Christianity. And when we say anti-Semitism, we're specifically talking about the type that was formed in Christianity. We're not talking about sort of broad xenophobia against Jews. So, for example, in the uh, um, sort of um, classical Muslim world, Jews were far from equal in Muslim-dominated countries, but they didn't engage in the kind of like vicious uh, conspiratorial genocidal anti-Semitism that you see in Europe. That's very much a European Christian invention. Mm-hmm. But what they essentially did was in the development of their theological sort of differentiation, they had to kind of build on earlier sort of libels around Jews as a sort of conspiratorial cabal of people that engage in really nefarious practices for like misanthropic or even demonic reasons. And part of this has to do with the Jews' sort of resistance to assimilation. Uh, Jews are not, obviously not, Jews of 3,000 years ago are not the same as Jews today, but there is a certain amount of like, we don't change according to societies that we're embedded in or engaged with. There's a certain amount, for example, with halakha, Jewish law, like things do have a certain continuity to them. And that's sort of threatening to people who want to remake entire populations of people. It's Mm -hmm. kind of inherently anti-assimilationist. And it's very easy then to paint them as like an outsider, ones who, who aren't playing by our rules. They're not part of our society. And Christianity, in an effort to differentiate itself as a breakaway religion from Judaism, focused really heavily on Jews sort of uh, failing to understand the real spiritual message of their own scriptures, failing to live up to the the promise that their religion had, like failing, they, like uh, Christians are the new Israel, right? Like not Jews. Mm-hmm. They and then eventually develop that into open like hostility and then the suspicion that Jews were engaged in something really nefarious. So uh, the blood libel is an example of this, the idea that Jews are secretly kidnapping and killing Christian children to use their blood in different rituals. Um, host desecration is one after the Catholic Church decided that the the wafer, the host, is literally the body of Christ. They then started accusing Jews of stealing that host and stabbing it because they were so cruel. Um, they have, you know, accused them of having pacts with the devil, engaging in all kinds of sort of like horrific things. And then at the same time, um, Jews, they weren't disproportionately moneylenders, but the number of Jews were involved in moneylending because of their prohibitions on other industries. And then, of course, Christians used that as a propaganda tool and basically kind of trumped up the charge. And so that populist anger was started to intermix with these stories about Jews. And you get incredibly violent hostility. 
and like you know like I was, I was talking with my co-author ben it's like it's not i don't think at this point in history it's it's good to luxuriate in all the terrible stories of things that happen to jews i think it's sort of like almost like pornographic in a sense. But if you read like pogroms that are kind of a mix of this theological anti-Judaism and the reaction to the monarch, basically they're targeting the Jews instead of targeting the people who actually hold power. There's a kind of guttural rage and the kind of cruelty that they're engaged in is totally off the map. Like it has no productive function other than just like as much kind of creative violence as possible. And that's a kind of a very particular impulse. And this is one, again, I think is the flip side of that impulse to liberate yourself, to engage in oppression of others has some of that element to it. And it's very ephemeral. It's like very kind of uh, gut driven. But those stories about Jews went through a lot of versions and a lot of ideas about Jews, Jews as money lenders, as Jews as people who steal from Christians, inherently dishonest people, those were secularized. Um, into what became known as anti-Semitism, opposition to Semitism. It was a kind of pseudo-scientific idea that Jews had a particular ideology almost like in their genes, and they were affecting society in particular ways. And so the movement against them, the movement against Semitic influence, was sort of a productive movement to stop them from kind of degenerating society. And the idea of how they're influencing society is that they're engaged in sort of these cabals, either banking cabals, cabals involved in the media, you know, they're changing public perception, they're involved in um, legal professions, obviously, again, money lending, um, all forms of like banking and finance in particular, all these kind of new industries in an early capitalist environment. And so these, what we know as the most popular conspiracy theories about secret societies, about Rothschild bankers, things like that, emerge out of that period. And that's the beginning of what we know today as a conspiracy theory, the the really coherent, secular conspiracy theory. You know, it might have some religious overtones, certainly, but it doesn't argue itself necessarily in purely religious terms. All conspiracies that come later basically have the same format that was developed around this. They all have the same basic structure. And most conspiracy theories have lineages that you can trace back. One came from another one, which came from an earlier one, and so on and so forth. They always come back to Jews. And Mm -hmm. most conspiracy theories today hold that same anti-Semitic structure. So QAnon is a really great example of this. You know, QAnon barely, quote unquote, names the Jew. Names the Jew is something that open white nationalists do, right? They'll say, okay, this is specifically the Jews. But instead, what QAnon does is they'll use the the figures of the cabal. They'll take all the kind of structures of this earlier anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. They'll use verifiably Jewish names or uh, stereotypes associated with Jews. They'll take older um, pieces of those conspiracy theories, theologic pieces, and secularize them. So, for example, they believe that a cabal of satanic uh, Democrats uh, with, with curious R last names are taking children and sacrificing their um, uh, adrenal glands to extract this su- substance that they use then in rituals to intoxicate themselves. That's right? familiar. Right. It's familiar. <laughs> uh, it uses a lot of sciencey sounding words, adrenochrome, which is not a real thing, but it sounds Instead like- saying we're making the forbidden matzah or whatever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so what they're doing is basically capturing ch- Christian children and using them for their, their evil Hebraic rituals. But again- yeah. They don't always say Jews. Some of them do. Increasingly, they do say Jews. But it takes just a tiny scratch on this uh, to find Jews. 9-11 Truth is a really good example, you know, where like cabals of bankers, 
or you know Israel, whatever it is that's verifiably not involved, are accused of being involved, and that the 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 pattern for how this worked has an earlier anti-Semitic conspiracy theory to it. So like these are generally how those kind of work. I in my book I interviewed David Newart, who wrote Alt America and other um, other books mm-hmm. uh, about the far right and conspiracy theories, and he you know says that basically the blood libel is the ur conspiracy theory. It's like the basic source of all conspiracy theories because the idea that a small cabal of people are engaged in this really nefarious work of extracting kind of goodness and turning it into something evil. So I think anytime you have a conspiracy theory, it's going to have this DNA. I can't think, you know, we kind of talked about the, is there any conspiracy theory that engages in a way that's not anti-Semitic? And I think part mm-hmm. of the problem is that we live in a globalized world. So other cultures have had conspiracy thinking in them, but mm-hmm. with Western, the West has really exported anti-Semitism as a subtle cultural code. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I mentioned earlier, Muslim anti-Semitism, obviously there is anti-Semitism in Muslim majority countries and some Muslim uh, communities. But when you look at it, it actually looks much more like exported Christian anti-Semitism with some now islamic kind of branding or like some opportunistic use of muslim sources it very much looks like a western export and Mm -hmm. i think that's what we're seeing now globally on conspiracy theories is that even if there was versions of these and like other cultures had conspiracy theories against diasporic people you know there's conspiracy theories about uh, chinese immigrants in malaysia and there's conspiracy theories about uh, koreans in japan like there's there are those but nowadays the exporting and universalization of the anti-semitic conspiracy theory as the earth conspiracy theory has affected all people's sense of how they build those and so you're going to find you know, I talk about this in an article, you're going to find spray paint in Japan that say the Jews did 9-11 in a place where those people likely had never met a Jew and maybe <laughs> no one in their their ancestry line has ever met a Jew, right? So this isn't about Jews. So I think in that way, we've globalized so effectively and exported our own bigotry so much that there is really no place in this conspiracy thinking that doesn't involve Jews. Can you can you really quickly explain what you mean by er something for folks yeah. who... Yeah. Er, but mean like the kind of universal base form. So the kind of the most kind of origin point. So we're saying the Ur conspiracy theory maybe means like the first conspiracy theory or the kind of conspiracy theory that established the format for it. So you can look back and say, okay, it kind of started here. What's the thing that these all hold in common? And I think that Hmm. you'll see that in the blood libel is that they all hold those basic structural points in common later on. One might say the genesis of conspiracy theories. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, I just learned so much in the last 10 minutes. I feel like when I go back and listen to this episode, I'm going to like play it at three quarters speed and like pause <laughs> and ponder things. No, Siri, like I, I really did. That was, uh, thank you for the like deep historical context there because there's a lot of that that, um, you know, is unknown to me that I, you know, I'm aware of like, what, what, what? And I also, I know it's a lot too. And I think like it's, um, this is part of the, the, I think the problem is that like in any given situation, particularly in situations of anger, how useful is it for me to explain to them what host desecration is? You know, I think like it's actually hard to intervene in these spaces. Um, and it's especially hard to intervene when there's really contentious stuff like um, Israeli colonization of Palestine and stuff. So it's, it's actually really hard when there's very justified anger. Um, and the targets of those anger actually are coded as Jews. Like, I think it's actually really hard to then intervene and say, hey, hold up, you're actually doing a thing and it has a history and it's a problem. Well, it also makes it difficult to talk about anti-Semitism in simple terms. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like sometimes when people ask me questions about it that should be simple questions, I'm like overwhelmed by the amount of information I'd have to transmit to give them proper context. You know what I mean? I've literally been that person to Cassandra. (laughs) That's how this interview came about. I was like, we should do an interview about this. (laughs) We like transmute American racial taxonomies onto anti-Semitism that don't really fit, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, it's a couple of interviewees that I had for the book that made this interesting point. They phrased it in an interesting way. And I think Jay Fridge, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, had framed it this way. Is that only sometimes does anti-Semitism make Jews poor. It doesn't mm-hmm. make Jews poor all the time. And in fact, sometimes it stabilizes Jewish income. So, for example, in areas when Jews would have been a hyper-exploited population, they're allowed to have certain amounts of wealth as a way of defecting uh, anger from peasant classes away from the actual rich people and onto the Jews. So they might not actually interact with a noble person, but they would interact with a Jew and they might see the Jew having stable money and might have, there might be nice things in their home. And that would communicate to them that this is the person that's exploiting me rather than the noble who I've never come across. And there's a certain kind of positioning of Jews in a lot of those situations. You know, one thing we talk about in the book is this phenomenon of Jews and the relationship part of this is the relationship of white Jews to whiteness is that when white Jews were very kind of openly accepted as white folks in the US, particularly after the Second World War, there was a kind of class jumping that took place. But what happened was that a lot of Jews, particularly what we call kind of second wave Jews moving here in the 1920s, were very poor, a lot of them socialists, a lot of them like working in garment factories, union organizers, but basically in these dense urban areas, then started to leave those urban areas as they were kind of coded as white, became middle class, in a lot of ways conservatized, right? Israel's formed in 1948. There's other things that kind of make it more conservative. And who moves into those areas? Well, it's a lot of black folks. It's a lot of Puerto Rican folks, lots of communities of color where Jews now might be the business owner. They might be the landlord. Uh, because they kind of class jump. They might uh, own the grocery store that um, all the uh, folks in the community use and has maybe jacked up prices or they work and they're not being treated really well. And so again, that dynamic is continued of them being sort of the middle agent. You know, the uh, 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 Jewish shop owner does not control capitalism, right? But they are the person you might see. And so again, you kind of repeat that dynamic. So it's not always that Jews are uh, going to experience anti-Semitism in the way that black folks experience anti-blackness in the same kind of structural way. And also the U.S. is not foundationally built on anti-Semitism in the way that Mm -hmm. it's built on anti-blackness and colonialism. So it works fundamentally differently. There are some cases in which it looks more similar. So for the Orthodox Jews, they are more likely to be, you know, uh, hurt by police. They are more likely to be poor. Uh, There was a recent study that came out that if someone is coded as Jewish in employment, they're much more, much less likely to hire them. Um, there's usually those there's other things that kind of go along with it it's not um usually as far as we kind of understand there's like limited data on this but it's not as with someone is coded as like a secular jew it's more like if they're coded as orthodox mm-hmm. uh, where someone's difference seems like it might cause you a problem or like it might make you uncomfortable um or if it feels like um they hold jewish qualities that you asso- associate with unsavoriness you know like large noses or weird ways of speaking um or maybe they bring weird food into the office stuff like that um and so those things do actually happen in that but it de- but in general it works differently um and so there's a certain kind of structural unsafety 
for Jews. Like they're always kind of worrying about where the other shoe's going to drop because anytime there's instability, Jews often get targeted in that. But that doesn't mean in the day to day they usually you know, can't find a job or are pulled over at disproportionate rates. So it works differently. It's hard for people, I think, to identify that. Um, this is kind of true in general when we're talking about oppression outside of really narrow terms. People generally have learned to understand things in a certain way and dominant hegemonic discourses. And then learning new ways is really, really tough. I think it really it's really clear, for example, in the way that the left just seemed totally unwilling to understand trans issues for decades. To mm-hmm. say, like, just t- totally looked like they couldn't, they couldn't compute um, how little they understand sex work issues or uh, body issues, fat issues. Like it's, it, there's a unwillingness to see that oppression is actually different for different folks, either individually or as groups um, and to sort of accommodate for that and to think through how these things are complicated. And so we can't assume that one thing tracks with another, that you can talk about oppression in one uh, situation and have it um, be the same for another. So I think that creates that problem you're talking about. So what are you going to do? Are you going to sit down and say, look, we need to have a, a conversation about, you know, second century Egypt, BC, and how Jews were coded as this. I mean, it's a, it's a hard proposition. <laughs> we have to talk, we have to go back to 1905, <laughs> or 1903, and talk about Tsarist Russia. Yeah. I'm wondering, so you, I'm trying to remember exactly how you phrased it, but when there's when there's instability, that's when people tend to target Jews. And when there's instability, that's when conspiracy theories also seem to like foment, um, as well as fascism. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how those things are related, especially because you write books about <laughs> fascism and, and anti-Semitism. I mean, fascism is also an attempt to liberate oneself, right? It's to liberate oneself by inculcating more oppression. It's like a, almost like an autoimmune response, right? We're going to attack the immune system as if that's actually what's harming us. We're going to attack, you know, the movement to undo white supremacy because that may be what's harming us rather than obviously the reverse. So it's tenfold by two things. One is a sort of essentialized identity and one is a sort of social stratification. So the idea that your identity is fixed and must be preserved and that's an essential piece, usually racial identity, but sometimes it's others. And then the other thing is that all of humanity has to be stratified in this hierarchy. You know, you have to be, you are white because you are not black and uh, Mm. that whiteness is above blackness, for example. And this is a way of taking a privileged part of the class and telling them that their oppression is the cause of the progress of other parts of the class. So it's specifically about splitting the class. So in a way, it's very clear what it's doing. It's disallowing you the ability to organize amongst working people or non-rich people to change a society that is better for all of you, right? So it's like very specific in that way. Hmm. Anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories are a story about your oppression that never get to the structural roots that are usually factually untrue Mm -hmm. and are able to kind of break potential solidarity. So again, Mm -hmm. any case I think where the immediate hardships of actual organizing are onerous, confusing and frightening, conspiracy theories actually disallow that. So for example, if I really want to change the world, it's going to require things of me, right? I'm going to need to figure out how I'm participating in white supremacy so that I can actually collaborate with non-white folks. And once we do that, it actually changes the world for all of us, right? This makes it much better for us. Like I Mm -hmm. personally benefit from that. But getting there is a little bit hard sometimes. 
it's also confusing. I don't quite see it. I've never seen it before, right? And I'm actually mm-hmm. running into this movement that's telling me that my whiteness is actually the thing that would make me happy, that whiteness is actually the thing that historically kept me safe, that whiteness is actually what I'm trying to protect. It's not all this class conflict stuff. That's the lies that they tell you, you know, (laughs) that actually want to take from you uh, (laughs) all socialist movements. And I think so uh, people are out there and confused. And and remember, bigotry is really interesting because it speaks to people almost like their conscience, like it it's impulsive. It's felt really emotionally. It feels true to people. I can tell you what doesn't feel true is Marxist jargon. (laughs) What feels true. (laughs) when they were growing up that's what feels true so it's a lot of times when someone speaks of the, they're, they're trying you're searching for a way to liberate yourself you're looking for a revolutionary story about it and then someone comes in and tells you something that actually tracks with a lot of the impulses you felt historically because being raised in the society we are that teaches people to understand the world in a certain way so i think those movements come up in that way you know fascism is just a particularly modern and revolutionary version of something that happens all the time and has historically happened for centuries you know this kind mm-hmm. of impulse to actually to barrel down into a hierarchy to basically reestablish tradition and immobile social rules and to focus on identity at the cost of all others. So instability simply radicalizes people to change their lot. And that is what's happening at such a systemic level now because capitalism is imploding, the the environment Mm -hmm. is collapsing. Like the stasis of the 20th century cannot continue any longer. And Mm -hmm. so that necessitates radicalism of all types. Um, Which is also why it necessitates anti-fascism, because if you want any kind of revolutionary movement that's positive, you're going to have to reckon with the revolutionary movement that's not positive. Right. <laughs> Seems simple enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're working in some um, real toxic material there, dealing with fascism, with anti-Semitism, with conspiracy theories, and that's got to um, you know take a toll on you, on your uh, mental health and well-being. And I'm wondering what, what you do um, for yourself to help take care of yourself. And spoiler, this leads into, um, you know, a deeper question, which is what we always try to get to in with like the world is dying is talking about um, how we help others and how we help our communities with this. But what do you do for yourself? I, I don't, I think the reality is that I don't have a good solid answer for that question. I don't think <laughs> that, that I <laughs> actually formed health in my life in a very perfect way. But there's a couple of things I kind of thought about. I mean, I think one is that I, I think researching the far right is actually sort of empowering to people. I think, you know, if I kind of try and figure out what it is I'm doing here, like, why am I here? Um, it's not just for productive work. It's not just that I want to produce something that will stop it that I think is productive. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. But there's also certain a part of it about looking at something that finds, seems frightening and confusing and sort of under the illusion that if I keep listening and I keep reading it, it will somehow make sense to me. And that gives me sort of control over my life in a way. Um, and I feel like I can sort of manage it, even though it actually brings instability into my life, you know putting my name on an article about it and, you know, get threats from proud boys or white nationalists that brings instability. Having Andy no subtweet you or whatever. (laughs) Totally. I mean, that, that is actually unstable, but there is a sense though that looking at stuff, I think brings a certain stability. You know, I was, um, in doing this book, I was interviewing a rabbi, uh, from Chabad Lubavitch, which is like a Hasidic, uh, and he's kind of particularly like left leaning, 
Hasid. But, you know, I was talking to him about anti-Semitism, particularly in Orthodox communities, which often gets discussed as being the more um, sort of facing it more frequently because of their visibility. You know, an Orthodox Jew is very visible. And a Haredi or, or ultra-Orthodox Jew is even more visible than that. You know, black hats, suits, like people kind of know what they're looking at. And, you know, he was telling me, well, you know, I don't really concern myself much with anti-Semitism. And I was like, well, why not? He's like, well, it's not very Jewish. Uh, and I, uh, you know, <laughs> his point was like, I actually fill my life with Jewish things. And this is particularly not Jewish. And so, I, <laughs> you know, part of me is sort of like the opposite to this is to engage is to to not engage with things that aren't Jewish, is to basically say, like, actually, I am going to be really purposely involved in the antithesis to these, you know? I, There's also weird. something very Jewish about deconstructing something, like, down <laughs> to its tiniest parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, yeah, he had all the quotes from, from the Rebbe about this, which I thought was great. I, you know, it's, we forget, I think, what we're doing here all the time. You know, being involved in organizing, being involved in work of any kind is meant to create a joyous life. It's meant to actually do something, perform something in your life. And I think we get so obsessed with functionality and we don't actually live those lives. And the answer to that is actually living those lives. It's building strong relationships with other people. It's engaging like kind of art and spiritual life. The things that give your life meaning, I think engaging in that as openly and sort of like flagrantly as possible is is what you do there and it's interesting because what the far right does is it sort of shows you the vulnerable empathetic parts of yourself right because it it, it appears in those cracks it appears in the things that they target so mm -hmm. those in a way are are how you come to learn about what's so meaningful about yourself you know jewishness is targeted by me that's exactly what i find meaningful those mm -hmm. are the things that i bond with other people about that's how I find like a path forward in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I think all those sorts of things, I think engaging as much as possible with that. Um, and I think it's, it's perhaps on us to think less about what we can produce and give to people as much as we can be with them. I mean, this happens all the time in organizing spaces. I used to be the worst offender about this. You know, no, that's bad organizing. No, that's just cultural production. No, that's navel gazing. Um, no, I think we should engage in cultural production and navel gazing. Like, <laughs> we should do the things that make us happy. And I think like that, there needs to be a lot more of that. And any kind of organizing work that people are engaged in or any kind of work needs to be in the service of that, that end. And that's how it should be measured. And not like reproducing the same metrics our bosses do about how productive we should be and what that's about. Mm. So I think we like, shouldn't just reproduce capitalism in our anarchist spaces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and this happens all the time, right? It, it happens all the time. We are we are ritually unkind with each other, unloving, unwelcoming. Um, it is. It's the absolute mm. worst, and I and I I think it's interesting because. Uh, we used to talk about like the statistically, for example, abuse, domestic abuse and sexual assault are commiserate in activist spaces as they are in the rest of the world. There's no actual difference. So like all the people that are doing these workshops on consent and addressing abuse and stuff tend to reproduce those dynamics as much as anywhere else. I would say that like unkindness and a lack of community is even worse in activist spaces. They are not uh, particularly joyous places to be it's i find them very hard in a lot of ways to be mm -hmm. in those spaces anymore and i think that's sort of what we have to do we have to look really carefully about how we build those relationships in authentic ways 
that's how I think you survive doing hard kind of trying work. Putting yourself in vulnerability, vulnerable spaces only works if you can live in a comfortable, vulnerable way. Um, mm -hmm. So I think when I, I say I'm not really there yet, I feel like I, that's the, the direction I would like to go. That's how I would stay sort of healthy in a way, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So part of our community response to conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory thinking and fascism and, and anti-Semitism is kindness and compassion mm -hmm. for others. And when they show up with their vulnerabilities, accepting those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's this old IWW poster of, um, it says something like, if you're not talking to your coworkers, somebody else is. And it has a picture of the clan. Um, <laughs> wow. This <laughs> Hardcore. You know, like if you're in, in rural America, they're not, you're like, we aren't talking to folks, but someone is yeah. talking to them and they are validating their experiences. And they're saying, yeah, that's really fucking hard. They're not going to someone who's losing their farm in a foreclosure and saying like, just to be real, have you checked your privilege? And like, you're not the most marginalized person in this situation. That's a really, that is a hard thing to throw at people. Um, people are actually having a really tough time most of the time. And we have to find a way to connect with them and then also not put up with their bullshit and actually talk to them about conditions of, of settler colonialism and white supremacy. But we need to actually invest in people. They will not care about us unless we care about them. And conspiracy theories very much are people's attempts to make sense of their lives. And so participating with them and making that sense, I think is useful. You know, I'm anti-fascist first, which means I'm defense first. Defense always comes first. We protect communities before we do anything else. I don't think mm -hmm. that's the same though as addressing conspiracy theories all over the place and figuring out how we address them with compassion with people we care about, how we address them institutionally, how we stop them when they need to be stopped. Like how do we create barriers and borders? All those things are important. But I think like it in our communities in general, a lot of conspiracy theories emerge out of dispossession and we have to choose whether or not to possess those people. Basically, do we want mm -hmm. to create that? And, you know, and Margaret says this too. I mean, like people, the best way to confront conspiracy theories is to give someone a life that matters. I mean, these, that's what we're actually doing here. So I think focusing on those, that underlying fertile soil, figuring out how to change that dynamic, give people real tools, uh, give them real relationships and friendships. I think that's really important. Do you have any favorite tools or resources on? So, so uh, my preface to this is that I've had people ask me this question. And the reality is that my favorite resources on anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories are really dense and most people will not read them. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have any favorite tools or resources that are more digestible. Yeah, I think there's a few good pamphlets right now that exist that are useful on this. Uh, Jews for, for Racial and Economic Justice, which has been around for decades. It's uh, um, this like progressive, progressive left-leaning Jewish group. Um, has a pamphlet on anti-Semitism that's particularly good. April Rosenblum mm -hmm. has a pa pamphlet called The Past Didn't Go Anywhere that's also mm -hmm. really good on this. Um, there's a pamphlet put out by... Um, I think it was a group called Unity and Struggle um, called How to Overthrow the Illuminati. It's specifically about oh, uh, yeah. conspiracy theories and, and black communities. That's a really good um, resource. And there's a few others. Again, I think what, you know, one thing you're pointing out is that 
one of the issues around anti-Semitism is that the right has sort of captured the rhetoric on it because they use it to defend Israel. They use accusations yeah. of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. to defend Israel, and they overshoot the claims that the left is anti-Semitic. So a lot mm-hmm. of these groups just simply don't share a worldview with us enough that their analysis I find particularly compelling. But there are some versions of the left that have done it, and they tend to be particularly academic. So critical theory and Frankfurt School Marxism, you know, there's a lot mm. of that stuff written on anti-Semitism that's good, but gobbledygook most of the time. Um, there is a basically lost, forgotten world of Jewish feminism from the 70s and 80s that it's actually quite interesting, but it's like next to impossible to find. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's anti-fascist stuff because anti-fascists are kind of ahead of the curve on the anti-Semitism question. But I think those pamphlets are particularly good to high on someone. And hopefully, Ben and my book will be, will be like that. I'm hoping it will be. Yeah. Yeah. I Maybe this is just part of anti-Semitism and also conspiracy theorism because uh, critical thinking is difficult and can't always be you know handed to someone in a tiny package um but it just feels like yeah it feels like someone has to actually be invested in learning about it Mm -hmm. like it's difficult to explain but david renton who's um He's this great author and and attorney in britain and he writes a lot about the history of anti-fascism and he wrote this book on the Labour Party's anti-Semitism controversy. So people who don't know, the Labour Party in Britain has been embroiled in this big anti-Semitism controversy for the past several years. Um, it, it has been cynically employed by the Tories as a way of attacking the party. Um, mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious that that's what's happening. But it's also obvious that there has been some instances of anti-Semitism in the party. It's not nearly what the right says it is, but it is. it does happen. And, and you know, David sort of relitigated this and kind of pointed out that it's, you know, the party's turned towards populism and everyone's turned towards populism a few years ago. Populism came kind of the mm-hmm. thing that had a weak point and basically kind of didn't call out conspiracy theories as they started making their way in and or kind of um, crude anti-Semitic ideas. And he's like, the answer to that is actually, if you look at the what works for the Labour Party, it's actually class war is the answer to that. It's actually talking to people about mm-hmm. class um, ends up being the antidote to that and having political education. Um, Daniel Randall, another friend of mine from Britain, has talked about, he wrote a yeah. book about this. And like, but political education is something that feels really dorky and not fun to do and not what people want to do in a lot of spaces, but it was an essential piece of radical movements that aren't there anymore. So actually talking to people about these things um, and getting involved with people to read some things. I think, you know, people do this in really overblown ways. Lord knows there's a million Marxist groups that make you sit in reading groups all day and no one wants to be a part of that. But like having some discourse on stuff and explaining like, you know, what kind of anti-capitalism we actually mean, I think is a useful thing. And is one of the better ways to intervene on that. Mm-hmm. That that book, uh, uh, Daniel's book, what is it? Confronting anti-Semitism on the left. He's the one who wrote left. that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's all right. That yeah. book was incredible. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. He's really incredible. Um, yeah. I think, I think, you know, one thing is to, when it comes to anti-Semitism specifically, most people don't know Jews um, and don't know much about Judaism. So I think just like, Weird. yeah, it, I think just letting people know, I mean, the amount of times I've heard things repeated that are just bombastically untrue. Like for example, I was in, um, I was in students for justice in Palestine and we had this mm. event and uh, someone asked a speaker where Zionism came from. And he said, it's in the Talmud. 
which is just, just like bonkers stuff, you know. Uh, not which like, is a thing that like a Zionist might say. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Ironically. <laughs> I interviewed Shoal McGee when doing my book and he, he made a point that like a lot of the worst corners of anti-Zionism tend to agree with the settlers. Uh, yep. You know? yep. Um, and so I think like it's it's just getting people that kind of that understanding. I think when people understand conspiracy theories and why they're toxic and what the consequences of them are, I think that's more useful. And then again, getting people in verifiable forms of community that actually meet their needs. I think that mm. actually is more useful. You know, I think when people get involved, for example, in the labor union, that tends to actually decline because they're like, okay, I could actually like do this thing. I improve my wages this way. I actually have like all this tactile control of my life. And then when people are in community with others, like they have these vulnerable caring relationships and they don't sort of aren't don't have the same impulse to build the kind of alienating, almost like cosmic level theories about the world. You know, believing in QAnon is a really lonely thing. Mm. You know, it breaks up families, it breaks up relationships. So yeah. I think all that kind of stuff is really alienating for people. Um, but, you know, there's a there, it, uh, there's this thing called the wave in SEIU. SEIU is a big kind of labor union. And they have this model of what they call a union conversation. They call it the wave. It's eight steps of how to have a conversation. It's very dorky. Um, but in the conversation, you do a few things, right? You introduce yourself. You listen to what people are saying. You agitate on their issues. You call questions, you know, you do a number of stages to get someone thinking about like their issue, why it upsets them and what they can do about it. But you do two things. One, you always plan the win. You talk through them. How can we win on this issue? How can we fix it? Is it possible? And then you inoculate them against what the boss will say. What will the boss say when you try and do that? What will they say to you? How is that bullshit? And we don't plan the win with people and we certainly don't inoculate them. Um, I, people need to see how they can win. They have to know how it's possible. If someone's mm-hmm. having issues in their lives, they have to see how it can win. Um, and if we don't have a sense of that, we're not going to be able to help with that. And we need to work that out with folks and also talk to them about like, yeah, people are going to give you other messages about this. Like, what do you think about that? What would you say back to that? Because I think, particularly with conspiracy thinking, a lot of people get trapped in not understanding the systems and saying, well, fuck, I guess that's the deal. I guess the Rothschilds do own it. I, I don't know. you know. Um, and so I think like planning the win and inoculation are really important in that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's true in general. You know, people, there's this assumption that if a situation gets so bad that the working class will rise up and overthrow it. But there is no evidence to suggest that. None. <laughs> What does statistically show people uh, or what statistically pushes people to take that kind of action is seeing that they can win. So small Mm -hmm. victories in their life Mm -hmm. or in organizing leads to big victories. You have to show people they can win. The pathway to winning using like multiracial, you know, community organizing or whatever it is, that base building, that's, I think, the most important piece because that will then totally push away these sort of false answers. Mm -hmm. That seems important in terms of motivating people to care as well <laughs> you know like yeah. no strategically this is yeah. very important and in all of our best interests <laughs> i i had this conversation with a member of the john brown anti-clan committee who was mm. a fascist group from the 80s and mm-hmm. i was talking to them i'll just will hold their name best in the conversation but i was asking them like how do you commute because you know john brown was essentially a white organization they recruited white leftist folks um, in support 
of a kind of anti-white supremacy platform in support of black nationalism and some other things. Um, in a lot of ways, kind of divisive, a kind of divisive mm-hmm. organization. Their politics are a little divisive. And I asked them, like, well, how do you communicate to white working class people why eradicating white supremacy is in their interest? And she said, she kind of paused and said, I don't know that it is in their interest. Hmm. She's like, I don't communicate with them on that. I communicate with them about what kind of world do you want to live with? And I, I told her, I was like, I, I just disagree with that entirely. I think like it is in their interest and you have to tell them why it's in their interest and you have to plan out why it's in their interest. I do believe it's in my interest. And when it comes to conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism, it's super clear why it's in their interest because anti-Semitism will stop you from winning. It's just so point yeah. blank, right? Like George Soros is not the reason you can't pay your mortgage. It's simply not, but someone would. <laughs> Yeah. Anti-Semitism, however, <laughs> also not the reason. Just to be clear, not the reason. I was like, you know, like there are people doing this, and they have names and addresses. But the people, like what you're saying, is a false pathway. It's totally going to direct you the wrong way. And we should talk to people about what happens when they don't just double down on privilege, when they don't just double down on those sorts of things. What happens when they sort of reach across communities and build large communities, they become infinitely more powerful. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so overwhelming the kind of change that you can have and not just in the long term, in the immediate term too. Um, you can see that with the labor movement. You see that with any social mm-hmm. movement. That's one real serious gains that happened by doing that. It never mm-hmm. happened by doubling down on their privilege. So I think talking to people about their interests is essential. Um, and that also shows that you, you actually give a shit about them because if their interests are your interests, that shows that there's an actual shared bond there and you can build something. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. Mm. So Shane, you've mentioned uh, your books. You've got one that just came out, right? No, Passeron. Um, it was a, it's a phrase used particularly during the Spanish Civil War about blocking uh, fascist access to space and movement into communities. So it's about um, blocking them, their ability to to arrive nice okay so no pasta around that just came out um i've got a friend who picked it up at powell's when you were there doing a book event or reading recently um he said it's really good and it's going to loan me his copy so i'm excited to get to read that too and <laughs> i know you're working on another one we've talked about it here uh, on anti-semitism um does that one have a name yet do you know when it's uh yeah out? it's called safety through solidarity nice beautiful yeah uh and i think it'll I think it'll come out like this time next year. I think that's cool. what it is. So we're sort of like starting to wrap it up now, like in the writing of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So in the meantime, people can pick up uh, No Passeron and uh, then look forward to that. Um, anything else that you want to uh, plug today, Shane? Actually, yes. I will be um, doing more book events in January and February in New York, Philly, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Spokane, and Corvallis. Those all made sense until you got to Spokane and Corvallis. <laughs> and like someone wants to come to Corvallis, so I am I am there for it. I will hang that out. That's great. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks for being here and answering all of our questions. <laughs> thanks for having me. I know I'm happy to I'm happy to be here. Yeah, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this conversation, you know, ever since we started trying to schedule it. I've been really excited to talk uh-huh. to you. So Oh, what about we're supposed to ask about where people can find you. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, the doomed Twitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at underscore Burley one. Um, and on Instagram at Shane Burley. I am on Mastodon. Everyone's yes. excited about Mastodon <laughs> at Shane underscore Burley. I think 
I'm still figuring out my Mastodon life. Um, so yeah, you can find me those places. I'm usually on How about Patreon. I am on Patreon. Yeah, Patreon slash Shane Burley, all one word. Um, you can check me out there. I actually do a lot on Patreon. So yeah, you uh, do. I can, yeah, you can check me out there. I post constantly. I inundate people with things. So, and, uh, and I also have a newsletter called the Messiah Review, which is sort of like a Jewish review of books, write about various Jewish things, interview authors, uh, talk about lit and stuff like that. I'm starting a series on Jewish horror books. Um, and we'll be on there. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I didn't know about all those other ways to connect with you. So I'm going to go check those ones out. And to our listeners, we want to say thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, you can please give it a like or drop a comment or review or subscribe to us if you haven't already. These things make the algorithms that rule our world offer our show to more people. This podcast is produced by the anarchist publishing collective Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. You can connect with us on Twitter at Tangled Wire, Wild, Jeez Louise, and also on Instagram. Um, if you check out our website, tangledwilderness.org, you'll discover that we have a new book available for pre-order. It's called Escape from Incel Island, written by the one and only Margaret Kiljoy. And if you pre-order it now, you're going to receive a color poster with your copy when they ship in February. Much like Shane's work, our work here at Strangers is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters. Um, actually, honestly, we couldn't do any of this work without uh, our patreon support so if you want to join um and be a supporter you can check out patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness there's some cool benefits at various support tiers for instance if you support the collective at ten dollars a month one of your benefits is 40 percent off of everything on our website including pre-ordering margaret's new book we'd also like to give a specific shout out to some of our most supportive patreon supporters these include hosta dog Nikea, chris sam kirk Eleanor, Jennifer, Starrow, Cat J, Chelsea, Dana, David, Nicole, Mickey, Paige, SJ, Sean, Hunter, Theo, Boise Mutual Aid, Milka, Paparuna, and Allie. Thanks so much. <laughs>